this, 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 this show is brought to you by Safety FM. It begins in Orlando, Florida and travels steadily to the West, beaming across North America and planet Earth and into your head. The world of safety never stops. And now, the Safety FM podcast and broadcast with Dr. Jay Allen. This episode of the broadcast and the podcast is brought to you by Arrow. The next generation error reduction and mitigation system. For more information, go to aerohp.com. Well, hello and welcome to Safety FM. This is Jay Allen. How are you doing today? We are off to the very beginning of the week, so hopefully you're having an extravagant time. Oh yes, extravagant is what I said. Today is going to be an interesting day because we get to have a conversation with Brett Sutton. And I'll give you some more information about him right here in a few moments. But I want to tell you, you know, the further down the path I go with this whole thing that we talk about known as safety, I get so excited that I really just enjoy being able to do these interviews and being able to go out and have conversations with people about this glorious thing known as safety. It's just not one of those things that I get bored about talking about. I'm so passionate about our industry, and I'm so passionate to be able to bring these different approaches of safety to you. Now, I think it's funny because we do have a lot of conversations related to human and organizational performance. And I think it's interesting that when I reach out to people that are not inside of the human and organizational performance realm or safety too, they get a little bit hesitant about coming on to the show. Now, keep in mind that when I bring people on to the show, it's because I think that there will be interesting to you, the listener, on what's actually going on. So it's not that they only have to be safety too or human and organizational performance based. I want them to be based on having a theory or having a point of view on how they see safety. And I think it's always great when we can bring them into our little mix and us have those conversations. So please, if you are a listener and you want to come on to the show, understand it doesn't only have to be about hop I want to make sure that we understand that here today anyways let me go back to what i was talking about at the very beginning we're going to have a conversation today with brett sutton now i'll tell you brett had sent me an article which was quite a fantastic article and i read the article then i reached out to him and i said hey how about we have you come on and talk a little bit about the article that you had written and then we were going to go ahead and proceed forward with this here so let me give you a little bit of background on brent brent brings over 17 years of experience in occupational risk management and health and safety to safety associates which is an organization where he's at brent works in partnership with clients providing practical advice to address health and safety risk and develop strategies to drive improvements in safety culture. He is well regarded as a human and operational performance practitioner or safety too, however you want to look at it, safety coach and for assisting clients to understand the importance of safety governance. So I want you to know that, and he's coming to us from New Zealand. And now you have heard this gentleman, if you do listen to the pre-accident investigation that we have here on Safety FM with Dr. Todd Conklin, and Todd called it the Kiwi edition. Now there is a reference to that as we do go down the conversation. So if you want to look at it as the Kiwi edition, you're more than welcome to listen to it that way. But this is Brent Sutton from the Safety Associates. Please enjoy our conversation here today on Safety FM. Enjoy some of your favorite hosts in the safety world. Enjoy shows by Sheldon Primus, Blaine J. Hoffman, Jill James, Mike Sedham, Rob Fisher, Todd Conklin, and Jay Allen. Wow, you don't waste any time. I normally get here way before anybody else, and you were already sitting here by the moment that I cleft through. That's fantastic. Excellent. Hopefully I'm coming through uh, loud and clear. Yeah, you sound fantastic. I would, all, If I didn't know any better, I would think that you're in the same room with me. Excellent. Just shows you that the line across the uh, the Pacific Ocean functions. <laughs> so how are things with you? Yeah, good. Uh, look, really, really busy at the moment. Um, got a lot of uh, prosecutions happening that I'm defending, uh, you know, working with legal teams. Mm-hmm. 
and uh, we've got some groundbreaking stuff coming through that I'm working with Todd on down here, uh, which hopefully will see one of the national regulators um, run a project to adopt learning teams across an entire industry. Wow. So how soon is that going to start moving? Well, basically, we're uh, it's going to be back before the courts, um, uh, just before Christmas. And if the courts agree, then it's a two-year project. Um, but what's most exciting is the fact that um, part of that project is an actual case study. So it's really going to be evidence-based. Very nice. Very nice. So how did the whole how did the whole project get started? Um, obviously. Uh, you know, a, a client was charged as the result of a uh, of an incident that occurred within an industry, and uh, over here um, it's a criminal process. It's a criminal matter, which includes both um, sentencings and uh, fines. And uh, clients uh, can choose that once they've been charged, uh, they can either uh, enter a plea, or they can seek some form of uh, diversion. And over here, we have a diversion option called um, an enforceable undertaking, uh, where in that case, uh, rather than uh, entering a plea, you enter into a voluntary agreement and you do a whole lot of good things. You try and make good from bad. Uh, your other option is to uh, enter, say, for instance, a guilty plea. And uh, rather than paying a fine, you seek uh, the courts to uh, redirect what that fine would be into some form of uh, project order. And the once again, the concept of a project order is to try and make good from bad. And that's been very much the entire approach, is that the client uh, accepts their failings, what was alleged, and that rather than paying a, a fine, and, and over here, um, the charges uh, range between 1.5 million and 3 million um, as being the uh, upper levels of fines. So you, you would definitely you would definitely feel an impact. So let's say, for instance, hypothetically, they decide to make good, and all of a sudden they fail on their make good scenario. What ends up happening then? Uh, straight to jail, as they say. Straight to jail. Yeah, no, no, no pass on that puppy. So, so once again, um, uh, failing because because now you're actually um, failing to meet uh, a, a court order. So that has major uh, ramifications. So this, is no, so this is no joke there. I mean, I know that sometimes here, you know, you get slapped on the hand in regards to certain penalties. Some are a little bit more severe than others, but they can actually do a breakdown on a, on a daily basis. But if the person actually files for bankruptcy and then they come back as another company, they normally reinstate them, blah, 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 and they move so forth and on. It doesn't sound like that's the case there. Is that correct? Yeah, well, so, so once again, I mean, if, if, if a company um, in these type of situations, um, uh, because in these cases a company is being charged rather than an individual, um, if, if a company was to go into receivership or to, or to liquidate, the Crown or the government has the um, um, option to reinstate them and then to pursue it as a company matter because obviously um, the directors will then be in the firing line because they're the highest ranking official inside of the organization. Absolutely. But the reality is these types of projects, uh, you try to do them within a sort of um, 12 to 24 month period uh, to avoid that. And in these type of situations, um, the, the client or the company that's been charged is acting more on a funding arrangement. Um, so, you know, the, the, the risks surrounding that are pretty low. And also the court requires you to furnish your financials. So the court has to basically um, have been uh, basically satisfied that the client has the ability to pay. And that's regardless of what path you go down because the courts can't find you something that you physically can't afford. Their, their objective is not necessarily put you into bankruptcy. Now, do you and, have you noticed that this actually works well throughout the country? Uh, well, enforceable undertakings um, work extremely well, and the, all the enforceable undertakings, these alternative methods, are actually published online by the regulator, and uh, the results of those enforceable undertakings are published as well. So I think it does make a difference, because if 
If the objective from a regulatory point of view is for organisations to be called out and to be held to account, the enforced bond taking still does that because effectively there is a naming and shaming process that goes on uh, because, you know, uh, the charge, uh, what they're accused of doing or alleged, um, what their failings were is all public domain. So this pretty, this, this pretty much throws shame exactly on them. So is this something that's advertised via internet, on the news, or how does it go about? Yeah, but, but via the internet and uh, the media always have a presence as well, depending on how profile the client is. It is a naming and blaming process. However, that is a fundamental tenant of um, the Commonwealth system when it comes to uh, the legal process. Uh, there's always a victim you know, the person or persons that are harmed. Therefore, if there is a victim, then there always has to be a perpetrator. And sadly, in many cases, it is the company that is charged as the perpetrator. And this is why we wonder why companies blame workers, because our legal system is adversarial. It creates the two sides. It is a blame-based um, criminal process. Absolutely. So as you're looking at this, how does normally a client reach out to you to get your assistance? Oh, look, look I'm really lucky because uh, my, my background was from the insurance industry. So uh, from 2001, I, I've been working in the insurance industry and I set up private practice about seven years ago. And uh, the insurers in this country uh, um, offer uh, liability packages or, or insurance cover. And that also covers the uh, legal defence costs um, for any breaches of uh, health and safety legislation. So, so typically I will be contacted by uh, a legal firm or by an insurer or simply by word of mouth that some type of event has occurred. And, and that could be anything, Jay, from the point of view that I might get a phone call within 30, 40 minutes of either a fatality or a major harm, uh, all the way through to after client's been charged. So, Brent, let me ask then, how did you start down this whole path when you decided to say, okay, I'm going to actually have my career focus on safety, especially coming from the insurance business? Well, so, so once again, um, uh, unlike other people, um, where they get into accident by, so they get into safety by accident, or someone close to them has some, had some type of event or they've been driven to it, um, I chose safety. So I've always uh, had a risk management background. Um, I originally started off uh, in, this is how old I am, in 1981 in the whole information technology sector. That's still young. That's still young. Don't say you're old. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, absolutely. And um, the whole technology sector was all focused around the fact that um, software, you wanted to develop or create software so that uh, users couldn't break it. And software companies quickly realized that you can't force a user to do something in a particular way. So what you have to do is you have to allow the user to fail and to have some type of mechanism in the software to allow that fail to happen without it breaking the software. And we call that error trapping was, was the language. So, um, I was working for a couple of large American organizations and as a result of the events uh, in September in 2001, uh, I basically, uh, like a number of people, were retrenched from the uh, information te technology sector. And I really wanted to, at that point, um, change my career and, and refocus. And I was very fortunate to seize upon an opportunity um, that was in the, uh, the health and safety world. And um, that was tied in and I formed a, a partnership uh, with a, a local insurance based business. And New Zealand was going through a wave of uh, legislative reform and it introduced some uh, new legislation around um, health and safety. And that really piqued my interest. However, what I realized was that um, uh, the, the level of professionalism or the level of consulting that was available was a little bit hit and miss and I wanted to specialise and I wanted to specialise in the whole uh, area around understanding uh, the human component to safety 
and why were injury rates so high? And uh, part of that process was basically building a, a consultancy business to um, assist clients in doing that. And what year are we talking about roughly when you started wanting to look at this human component uh, aspect? Uh, it's, it was roughly um, uh, 2002. Okay. So what do you start investigating that you're looking at this human component aspect of the whole thing? Well, it really come down to the fact that, and this is really what, what the whole premise was, that if, if we manage the thing that causes harm, which is the hazard, then that provides certainty to not only the organization from a risk management point of view, but it also provides huge amounts of certainty to the workers that are exposed to the hazard. And I'd seen this constant battle of blame. Why did the person choose that? Why did they do that? And I kept looking at it and saying, fundamentally, the hazard was not being managed well. And this whole question came up to um, that, from my point of view, how a person sees risk is always going to be different. We, we train people, we try, to, we try to implement systems that say these are our rules, these are our approach. But at the end of the day, everyone views risk completely differently and everyone's on a different scale. And even in a given day, your view of risk change given those uh, human factors that we suffer, whether you are tired, whether your job is routine, whether you're um, rushing or simply frustrated. Now, if it's 2002 and you're having this conversation with people that are leaders or of an organization, how are they actually responding to you by you to saying this information to them? Oh, that I'm <laughs> I would imagine so. It's still a difficult. It's yeah. still a difficult conversation even today in 2019. Look, look, it is, and it sort of comes back to that. Um, you know, uh, risk management is the fundamental tenant for every business now. But I keep asking the question, what part of risk are you trying to manage? The, the thing that causes the harm or, or the people that are exposed to it? And organizations still can't tell me that today. Um, just, just yesterday, I, I, was, I was working um, with, with a group and uh, it was around um, uh, mental health, or as we like to say now, uh, psychosocial risks. And um, once again, that they, they, when we're talking about how we sort of manage risk or mitigate or control risk, um, they really thought that it was all about trying to control the person. And we talked about, you know, uh, doing things that help to influence systems so that those um, systems um, have that um, capacity, as uh, Todd would say, um, to support people so we don't put them in those same types of um, conditions. And they really struggle to get it. And I think that struggle comes from uh, the fact that uh, they don't have the level of knowledge that's needed. And they also uh, don't listen or don't engage with the people who are at being exposed to the hazard to begin with. So what do you think the solution is there for them to be able to get the knowledge base? Well, once again, um, that's why I'm a huge fan of learning teams absolute huge fan of learning teams because learning teams basically tells you what is actually happening out there and learning teams is um, you know you're capturing that key knowledge that people that are exposed to the hazards and who face that risk of uncertainty every day now could you explain to possibly some of the listeners that might not know what a learning team is give them a little bit deeper explanation on what you mean by that sure look that, that's a really good point and um, I like to say that it's actually, um, well, first of all, uh, it's not a tool, um, it's not a method. I like to say that a learning team or a means or approach of uh, engaging with workers to understand the types of problems and issues that they face every day and to gain understanding of uh, what they believe um, influence that work that they do and what it does, it shows the organizations the, uh, the difference between uh, work as imagined and work as actually done. And learning teams also shows from an organizational perspective the, uh, the variability that um, occurs. So, so a good example is you could be in a manufacturing environment 
and all our safe systems of work, all our you know our documents, our rules, everything, they, they describe what a good day looks like. But the reality is that your day never looks like that. And there are many things that change that day. So the example could be, uh, you normally work as a team of five, uh, one person is sick. So how does that other team of four make up for that one person? Do they stop work? Or do they simply have to manage that work that goes on? Or they can't access a piece of, um, say, manual handling plant that they'll normally use. Do they say, I'm not going to do that work? Or do they make some form of adjustment to that? So learning teams really gets from um, gets the organisation to uh, see and understand the, the variability that exists in work. Therefore, it gets to understand whether its current systems have that capacity or that scope to um, support people in good outcomes rather than give them rules. At the same time, workers get to see that everyone has different levels of knowledge and understanding. And we do a really simple exercise, which, which I'm happy to make available uh, to listeners on the, on the podcast, where we describe a scene to a group of workers and we ask them to write down um, as many things of what could happen. We give them a, a little bit of an event or a scenario. And what it does is it demonstrates that in the room, that the actual knowledge of the individuals in the room will vary by two and a half times on average. And then we get the person who has come up with the most number of items, who thinks he is the smartest person in the room. And we get the rest of the room to share with him what they came up with. And what the smartest person finds out is that he could not hold the same level of knowledge that the group held. And that then becomes one of these famous aha or light bulb moments. Because for the very first time, the group understand that um, safety or risk is much better managed as a group than as, a, as an individual. And how long does it take for them to all get that click moment or that moment where their eyes open and go, aha, uh-huh, now we understand this? Uh, five to six minutes. Okay. So I, I know that recently you sent over a article that you had written that is called, It is Time to Redefine Safety Risk. And I almost, based on what you're saying right there, I almost feel that there's some inspiration from learning teams that are involved in this. So as you were sitting there writing this article, what were you thinking? What was what was the pressure points? What were the things that you wanted to alleviate with it? Well, look, it, it sort of comes back to that um, we are so inherently focused about risk at the moment and about the part that people play in risk. Yet what I constantly hear and what I constantly see, even when people go through the old method of investigations, is that um, people that are killed or seriously harmed, or as Todd would say, people that are exposed to sticky stuff that kills you. Uh, That that that, depends on which translation you get, right? (laughs) uh, Yesterday, we we had the shorter word of the S beginning with four letters. Um, But for our listeners here, I'll I'll, I'll keep it clean, as they say. But fundamentally, with the stuff that kills you, I am in my 17 years of being in the space, I am yet to see a new hazard kill someone in the workplace. And what exactly do you mean by that when you say that? So so the example here, uh, New Zealand had a massive tragedy uh, called Pipe River, and there was a loss of uh, 29 lives as a result of uh, mining and there was an explosion in that mine. Now, you know, methane gas was the hazard. So methane gas being present was the hazard. And that methane gas was able to ignite and that, and that ignition caused a loss of 29 lives. Methane gas has been a well-known hazard of mining for hundreds and hundreds of years. Right. And how you control methane gas has also been well-known. So the fact is, for those people to have lost their lives, it meant that that knowledge of how to manage that methane gas wasn't being applied. 
And I see the same thing, uh, even you know, with, with, with serious harms or major harms, I'm yet to find a, uh, a new hazard. And I challenge people about this notion of new hazards all the time, because we, we sort of feel that we have to be on a constant scan or, or constant lookup. And just yesterday with this group, I was just reminding them that um, Einstein, one of Einstein's um, famous sayings, was that you can only see what you know. Therefore, for you to know it's a new hazard, do you have to hold knowledge of that hazard to begin with? And if you hold knowledge, how can it be a new hazard? So do you feel that this is a failure overall as an organization or as an employee? I mean, how do you look at it? Because it's kind of a mixture of both, depending on which angle you want to go with, depending on who you're talking to. So, so once again, you know, from an organizational point of view, um, it chooses to employ people into roles. And when you're looking to recruit people, then if you don't understand uh, if that person is competent to perform that job, then you take on that duty to build their knowledge and understanding for them to, be to become competent. That's why we call people, you know, apprentices or understudies or interns. It's all part of that learning process. Sadly, many organizations uh, either don't know what a competent person looks like, and they, they tend to hire based on um, experience. Um, I've even seen questions lately where they'll, they'll ask a prospective candidate, have you been involved in any, uh, any accidents or incidents? And it's all being driven from very negative context. Well, I think, and I think that's what happens is that a lot of time people look at safety as a negative context and they want to know people that have experience with X already occurring in some of the organizations they work in. So as you've been doing this for the last 17 years, and let's say, for instance, that human and organizational performance has been around, we'll say roughly 25 to 27 years, depending, depending on who you talk to, where do you think that our gap is? As we're moving forward with this, especially with the hiring process, do you feel that they have to be driven a little bit further down into how they look at safety as they're having the conversation? And plus, is the person that's hiring them going to understand this enough to be able to drive those questions? Sure. Look, I think it goes back to the article. It goes back to um, if we manage the hazard at its source, if we manage how the hazard releases its energy, because it has to release energy to cause harm. If we, if we manage that, then we remove the uncertainty the worker faces. So regardless of whether the worker is well-trained or not well-trained, regardless of whether the worker um, is facing uh, any form of uh, bias that they have on any given day that changes, whether they're feeling tired or, or distracted or complacent, doesn't really matter, then, then the fact is they're not going to be exposed to that risk because uh, it's the hazard that could cause the harm and organizations need to accept that uh, it's difficult for them to control risk because risk is very personal to the person who's exposed to it. And how do you think that language starts changing inside of an organization when you start explaining these methods and well, to them? Sure, it's confronting. It's confronting because they then have to look at it and say, well, what is the uncertainty that the worker faces? And then they ask the question, how do we get to understand what is the uncertainty? And uh, guess what the answer is, Jay? What's the answer? A learning team. And how do you think that an organization will accept that? And let's use the, and I'm going to only use the example here from the States. A lot of people believe in the behavior-based safety style of safety. So how do you do the mental shift inside of an organization? Because if you start telling them about human and organization performance, then you normally start talking about learning teams. How do you think that shift occurs for it to make logical sense to them after they've done an investment for X amount of time in behavior-based safety, and all of a sudden now you're giving them the hop philosophy? Sure. Well, in actual fact, we don't connect learning teams with the hop philosophy. Okay. We basically say that a learning team is simply a worker engagement method, uh, sorry, worker engagement means or approach. So we, uh, many of the work that we do in organizations are organizations that are very safety one approached. 
organizations, for instance, that may have made a major commitment to things like uh, the whole lean philosophy around quality. Uh, just last week, um, we were doing uh, uh, work in the uh, private healthcare sector where they've been trying to uh, manage what we call the command and control environment that exists amongst uh, medical practitioners. So surgeons are always the top of the pyramid and nursing staff are down the bottom. And we conducted um, a learning team with a group to understand what basically happens and goes on. And for many of these people, they all held amazing knowledge, but it was the first time they actually heard it from a group perspective. And it was the first time that the organization heard things in a very different way. So when you start mentioning learning team, especially like let's use the healthcare industry here, when they start doing the reaction, how much time are you giving them? Are you giving them the the standard hour that's normally the way that the learning teams are thought um, are taught, or do you go a little bit longer, or how does that work there? Well, look, it's quite variable, but but in this recent case, um, uh, we we actually uh, we actually looked at four risks for this client um, in a learning team of about 12, 14 people in under three hours. Now, the reality was that the first learning team, it, it, it was getting people used to the um, organic approach that learning teams takes. Because uh, they were nervous because they were expecting to see a physical process. They wanted to know, uh, where do we start, where do we end? And learning teams is very organic. So the first learning team always takes longer because people are trying to understand what is the physical process that they're going through. So as you give them the well, overnight soak time then, or do you do, no, or you didn't do, okay. No, we didn't, no, no. So, so once again, um, uh, the learning team we ran was about what was called a risk review. Okay. And, and the risk review was really understanding the difference between what the organization believed was happening, that sort of work is imagined, versus work is done. Aren't you always amazed that you're brought in as an organization to help out other organizations to essentially give them the same information that their organization already has inside of them? Doesn't that kind of amaze you? Yes, but that's the role of a good facilitator. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, I'm not I'm not downing it by yeah. no means, but it's always amazing that you're actually taking the information that's already there, but you're just kind of filtrating it and giving it back to the organization by the people that probably know how to resolve it better than anyone else because it's the people that are already there. And I always find it and, and I always find it amazing absolutely. that they're looking at us on coming out there and assisting when the information and the solution is always there. I mean, I've heard it said a thousand times, you can't be a prophet in your own land. And this is just a perfect example of that. Look, it is, but, but, I, but I think organizations also value the uh, independent assurance and verification component. So I think they value that a person is coming in with uh, no emotional attachment whatsoever to it. And, and I think it's hard and, you know, I look at people um, who have not been particularly successful with learning teams and it really comes down to the fact that uh, that it's not about the learning team itself. What's really interesting is they blame learning teams, which if we go back to it, it was a very safety one approach, um, where in actual fact um, the learning team hasn't failed, but what's failed is the, um, the knowledge or the competency that is needed for that person to be successful. So what do you think would cause a learning team to fail overall? Um, well, we, we call it weaponization. Okay. And when you give someone um, some new construct or some new um, approach or a new way of doing something, they have to use what skills um, and capabilities or competence they have to make that happen. And uh, when you go on training, a lot of the traditional type training courses, um, it, it's a form of, um, we, we actually, I, I like to call it um, uh, uh, waterboarding or water torture, <laughs> because effectively um, the person is having water poured on them and hopefully something will sink, um, sink into them. If we think about how adults want to learn, 
we actually want to know what are our gaps. And once I understand my gap, then I will focus on filling my gaps through the learning process. Therefore, if we hand something over to someone and we say, here's the great new shiny toy, go out and play with it, then we haven't actually identified, um, we haven't explained to them what does a good learning team's person look like and where are you currently at, therefore what are your gaps and how do we take you down that pathway. We're asking many people to do that by themselves. And we'll use words like, the more you do, the better you get. And what, is the, and, and what do they believe when stuff like that comes up? What do they tell you in return? Uh, what actual, the, the reality is, um, many of these people that are having to engage in these new concepts haven't done any formal learning for quite some time. So getting that mindset into place is actually what they need and what they want. And they feel relieved by that because um, there's, this whole, there's a whole sense of anxiety that they're being asked to do this. And at the same time, um, many of these people have come from uh, technical backgrounds, which means that their learnings have been what we call hard skills. And a lot of being a facilitator or even being, in your case, a, you know, a good consultant, there's a whole raft of soft skills that you need. So how does it work? And so how does it work for you when you're doing this? How well does it go over? Does it so are your is your standard learning team about a three hour event? I know it's a little bit longer because it's the first time. But how does it go when you start trying to deliver this message and how they need to understand this a little bit better? And you're not going from, you know, uh, an aha moment but that there it's more along the lines that you're trying to assist and help. I think the key thing is you always judge by how the people participate. And we look at it at, we know we've, got, we've always got certain types of groups in the room. We've always got people that want to try and you know, dominate conversation. You've got people that will always want to express an idea regardless. And then you've got the people that are quite quiet and, and what we're doing is we're, we're looking at how um, the entire group is evolving over time. And we rate our success based on the level of participation as we move towards the end of the process rather than the beginning. And we also um, get people to reflect on the process at the same time. And that's really important. And. Uh, we get them to reflect on what they've heard from others rather than what they have contributed because that's the power of the learning team environment is it's, it's, it's getting people to, to see the views of others and to take that information on board. And, you know, and frankly, from, from my perspective, um, uh, behavioural change has to come from the person wanting to change. And they'll always respect the view of their peer or their colleague rather than respect the view of the person they have to report to. So if they see and hear this alternative view that their colleagues are holding, and then we get them to reflect on that, then those learnings will start to shape and change them moving forward. Do you consider, well, let me rephrase that. What do you consider one of the biggest challenges then for that mental shift to occur? Um, I think that the, the challenge comes down to not getting people to look at it through their eyes, but to look at it through a different set of eyes. And how would you almost how would you almost have someone be able to do that? And of course, these are all opinion uh, questions. So please, please don't uh, sure. don't try to you know take it out on me because of it. <laughs> oh no 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 no! It's about it's about hearing different perspectives. So it's, it's no different when I'm uh, working with a, with a group of, um, you know, practitioners and, you know, they're excited by, you know, the, the new shiny toy in the room. They're excited about things like Safe Differently and, and Hop and Learning Teams. They're very excited. So, and what we do is, is we use a learning team about learning teams. We get people to share their experiences 
about the traditional methods that they've applied and when things have gone well and when things haven't gone well. And we get them to look at different perspectives from different sides and then we ask them to reflect. And I'm yet to find anyone who has said that learning teams would offer no additional value to them. Well, that's a good thing. That is a that what yeah. I call it a good problem to have if you've actually not ran into that issue. So let me kind of backtrack a little bit because I know that we started off on one and then I kind of went somewhere else with it. As you then going back a little bit to the article for a moment. Yes. When you were writing it, you so here was the pain points, here's what the things that you're trying to resolve. Do you think that once a actual reader, and in this case, some of our listeners actually end up re- reading this, do you think that you start pointing the direction on where we need to go? Do you think that it's going to solve the problem that you're seeing there? Well, look, I think there's two things. I think hopefully that that readers will see that um, that success and failure aren't that different. So if we if we go back to it, that, that when things go wrong, we see that as being unsuccessful work. Therefore, if it was unsuccessful and someone was harmed, then that's where failure and blame comes from. But if we challenge organisations to look at successful work, um, they will still find failure. Therefore, failure is normal. The difference here is, how does failure then lead to harm? And, and that's no different. There, there are many standards that exist, and, and, a, and a really good standard is a standard called ISO 12100, which is the international standard for managing machinery risk. And, and it, for instance, says that you have to understand the relationship between the job that people do and the hazards they're exposed to. And that relationship is called the hazardous situation. And then things can happen in those situations that then lead to events. And that's the same thing between successful work and unsuccessful work. You have to understand why people are successful in their work every day to then be able to attempt to manage the unsuccessful component of it. And if successful work is then made up of that relationship between the job that I do and the hazards I'm actually working with, then we've got to go back and understand that fundamental relationship. And uh, that relationship, the human factor component, um, does not form part of that relationship at that point that the human factors component, or what we could say, say the limitation of the person, um, that becomes part of of sort of controlling the uncertainty component afterwards, not beforehand. Now, Brent, if the listeners want to know more about you, where can they find out more information? Uh, Look, they can Google my name. Um, and um, there's uh, my LinkedIn profile. Uh, if, if, if they want to see me from an organizational point of view, my organization is called uh, uh, Safety Associates. Um, once again, I uh, want to do this, Jay, to uh, build a community uh, rather than from a, uh, a organizational perspective. Um, you know, I my, my business, my consultancy very much specialises in what we call human misery, which is major harm and, and, and fatal. Um, that continues to grow. I have no shortage of work. Um, you know, I, I got into this whole concept of learning teams um, uh, purely because I wanted to um, incorporate um, restorative safety with these major events. And that was really my trigger point. That's how I came into this whole sort of area of learning teams and HOP and what Todd does is because um, when things go wrong, everyone's a victim. Now, do you feel that Todd Conklin was one of your biggest influence when it comes to the human organizational performance side? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, And and that's because um, uh, Todd is a disruptor. How did, you, and, how did you discover him? What, what, where did you discover him? Well, how did it come about? Well, yeah, that, that's a really interesting story um, because uh, he was speaking at a, uh, a, a conference in, uh, in New Zealand and um, I was uh, given a, a, a complimentary 
uh, ticket on that. And I'd never heard of Todd before. And I went along and um, this guy came on stage, this um, what I term uh, larger in life um, character turns on stage. And his, his opening slide was um, clear and concise. Don't take a sleeping pill and a laxative together at the same time. Mm. Very good slide. I thought, <laughs> I thought, gee, this is different. Okay. And his talk, his views, and his disruptive way of doing things was not only highly entertaining, but it was terribly unsettling for the people that sat around me. And a lot of the people that are around me were reeling from the concepts that he was being said, because those concepts were very counter to their own beliefs. And I sat there and I said to myself, you know, I like this guy. What he said made sense. It connected the dots for me and it aligned to my own experiences and, and beliefs. And I remember saying to myself, you know, this crazy man's on point. And he'd even written a book. And Todd, in his own way of saying things, he claimed it was number one because 49 had been sold and 10 of those was to his mother. <laughs> and it was those types of moments that I'll never forget um, because um, the concepts, um, they made sense. And I then wanted to go down that path of seeing how could I apply those concepts. And I've used learning teams probably in a way that they were never originally thought to to, to be, which is when major events happen, there are three things we need to do. Uh, one is we need to deal with the, the whole regulatory inquiry from the regulator, or what we call the, you know, the investigation by the government. You need to get um, um, uh, business back to work. And we need to provide some form of restorative process because up until that very day, it went wrong and people's lives were changed forever. Both the organization and the workers believed what they were doing was safe. That belief has been shaken. How do we restore that belief? I do not see how an investigation and 400 corrective actions can restore someone's belief. And that's how I use learning teams to restore that belief. And, and you can imagine from a psychology point of view, how that helps um, everyone who was involved or who was exposed to the event. Now, when you look at that and you're able to change and kind of reinvigorate the way that they actually look at stuff and their beliefs, how does that make you feel as a facilitator? Oh, look, fantastic. Because um, I've been able to affect change by getting people to reflect and change themselves. And, and at the same time, you, you could see that um, uh, people are having to go through a, a very um, emotional process and for someone to uh, move into acceptance of what's occurred, they have to go through these horrible emotions of sort of anger and guilt and blame and denial. And to me, the, the learning team um, was a way of doing that as a group. And it was a, it was a way of getting people to, to see it through the eyes of others and, and to help them to move into acceptance. And that was both powerful, both from an, an organizational perspective, because there was as much doubt that exists um, within management and, and the board, all the way through to workers. But I, but I mainly did it from a, from a worker perspective um, to, you know, to give them faith in what was going on. And at the same time, uh, from an organizational perspective, many organizations are only prepared to affect change when something goes wrong. And that's sad, but that is actually reality in many things in life around that. Well, Brent, I'm going to tell you, we're going to have to do this again. We're almost at the at the 50 minute point and we normally do these for about a half an hour, but we're definitely going to have to do this again at some point. Sure. Look, I'd love to, Jay. And um, Todd was down recently 
and um, I was very fortunate to, um, to support Todd when he was down here. And um, Todd has been issuing this challenge to me about writing a book. And um, I'm at the 80% mark of uh, writing a book with a couple of my colleagues. And uh, that book, um, the working title, is um, um, the practice of learning teams. Oh, absolutely. And, absolutely. That sounds and, wonderful there. Well, and I'll, 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 and I'll tell you, you know, Todd does have a couple books on Audible or three books currently on Audible um, that were produced by some guy that I know. <laughs> yes. And, and they always play in my car. Oh, got it. And it's, it's really interesting. And, and I said to Todd um, that, uh, you know, reading a book on Kindle and then hearing the audio, you get two quite different perspectives. And I would tell listeners it's really important to actually do both formats because it gives you different perspectives. Oh, absolutely. And that's the thing. And what I like that what Todd does with his particular books is that when he reads the book, then he adds some additional information inside of the book that might not be in the Kindle version or in the in the paperback or the hardcover version, which I think it kind of adds an extra element to what he's what he's thinking at that particular time. Look, it does. And, and look, hopefully, if, if my book is worthwhile, we'll, we'll need to find um, a wonderful American person to um, to do the book because no one can understand how us Kiwis talk. <laughs> oh, yeah. I wasn't sure if I should mention the Kiwi aspect because I remember that Todd had said it on the, on the one that we recorded together last year, but I wasn't sure if I should say anything about that. But I'll let you bring it up. I mean, I, I think it's one of those things that you should actually do it in your own voice because a lot of people like to listen to the author. Sure. Look, and look, we can always do a translation just in case. <laughs> right. Well, well, Brent, I really do appreciate you coming on to Safety FM. Thanks, Jay. You're wonderful. And I, I look forward to catching up again soon. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the host and its guest and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the company. Examples of analysis discussed within this podcast are only examples. They should not be utilized in the real world as the only solution available as they are based only on very limited and dated open source information. Assumptions made within this analysis are not reflective of the position of the company. No part of this podcast may be reproduced, stored in a retrieval system, or transmitted in any form or by any means, mechanical, electronic, recording, or otherwise without prior written permission of the creator of the podcast, Jay Allen. Jay Allen. Jay Allen on Safety FM. The internet has changed. So should the way you bank. PNC Virtual Wallet for Digital Banking. It's time for a change. Now through March 31st, earn up to $300 when you open and use a select new virtual wallet product. Simply establish a qualifying direct deposit. To learn more, visit a branch or pnc.com slash checking offer. PNC Bank. Make today the day. Virtual Wallet is a registered trademark of the PNC Financial Services Group Incorporated. PNC Bank National Association member FDIC.